Are you out there doing your best to get on with life? Because, as you already know, it's what you make of your life that really counts. And sometimes having a few shortcuts to help you on your way can be very useful. The NLP Matters podcast might just be the toolbox you need to focus your attention, your effort, your drive onto what really does make the difference. Built on the foundation of neuro-linguistic programming, the NLP Matters podcast offers proven recipes you can use to create and sustain your life your way. G'day and welcome to the NLP Matters podcast. I'm your host, Joe Clark. In the past two episodes, we have begun to explore what NLP has to say about the totally fascinating workings of the human mind. Learning about how our minds work reveals the structure that underpins how we think, behave, and going about constructing our relationships with others. It means we can discover how we create our reality. Today, we'll discuss the processes that enable us to selectively filter the information or data that we then use to construct our own experience of reality. We'll be focusing on three key processes, which are deletion, distortion, and generalization. Now let's recap. In episodes 37 and 38, we discussed how as humans we use our senses and neurology to construct an internal version or representation of the external reality. Because humans have a limited processing capability, we're only able to process a sample of the external information that's available to us. This means that a vast volume of information is not processed. And, much like choosing winning numbers in a lottery, the likelihood of each of us selecting the same sample of information is extremely low. By definition, each of our internal representations, or maps, are different and unique. Today, we're going to explore the processes used to reduce the vast quantity of available information efficiently and effectively to a manageable sample size. Remember, at least 2 million bits of information per second are available to us in the external environment. Our survival makes it essential that we're able to rapidly filter in and prioritise the information that is important to us. At most, it is estimated that we can access roughly 130 bits of information per second. We use the process of chunking or linking pieces of information together to enable us to increase the volume of information we can process, such as the tree example from our last episode. And research indicates that it's about seven plus or minus two chunks that we can handle with some reliability. In fact, our internal representation or map of the world, our version of reality, is constructed from the bits we focus on. Now, why is all this important? Well, one inescapable consequence of this whole process of constructing reality is that each of our maps is unique because, like choosing winning numbers in a lottery, the likelihood of choosing the same sample of about 130 bits of information from the 2 million bits available, is nigh on impossible. And of course, what we do notice deeply impacts the way we think, the way we behave, and the way we interact with other people. 
It's important because how we relate to this reality that we've built directly affects the quality of life that we have. Yet, even though we filter out a lot more information than we take in, and our map is only one version of reality amongst many, we act as if our internal representation, our map of the world, is the whole and complete picture of actual reality. We strongly believe our version of reality is the right one. Now remember that this whole complicated process is done unconsciously, and because it occurs outside of our conscious awareness, we are not mindful of the active role we play in creating our map of reality. This means we of course behave as if our version of reality is the objectively true or correct version. And when we contrast everyone else's maps to ours, we decide those with maps that are most aligned to ours are more right, and those with maps that don't match ours are wrong. Once we believe we're right and that others are wrong, we not only miss out on the opportunity to be curious about their reality, but we become so attached to the belief that our internal representation is the only objective experience of reality, we then move into defending our viewpoint, often at the expense of relationships, friendships, learning opportunities, even freedom, all for the sake of being right. In contrast, if we accept that our map of reality is just that, it's our subjective view of the world and nobody else's, then not only do we open up the possibilities offered by the perspective of others, but the quality of our relationships improves as well. Because rather than judging people about the way they see the world, we can bring curiosity, interest and connection to our relationships. And when we realise that our map and experience of the world is a direct result of what we focus on, then we can start to choose what we do notice. And because we choose our focus, we can become more selective about the information we filter in, which means we're then able to influence the quality of how we experience our reality. In contrast, if we continue to believe that we are merely passive recipients of external objective information, and ignore the impact of human sensory, cognitive and psychological processing on our perception of reality, we will remain at the mercy of the largely unconscious process of filtering out and filtering in information that continues to reinforce our worldview. Information that continues to make us right about what we already think. And this is where we really start getting into the NLP model of communication. The founders and developers of NLP like John Grinder, Richard Bandler, Frank Pusilic, Judith Delosia, Leslie Cameron Bandler, Robert Diltz and others involved in the development of NLP were all academics. They drew from their professional training in areas such as linguistics, psychology, social work and systems theories. This academic background means the NLP model of communication was formed directly from the research, knowledge and theories on cognitive processing, perception and information processing capacity in humans. So, how does this filtering system work? If you can't for a moment be an external observer of yourself, or as we often say in Australia, imagine you're a fly on the wall watching your life as it happens. From this perspective we can see that we're getting on with life and throughout our days, 
there are external events that impact us. Imagine something like winning a large sum of money, or surviving a bushfire, or perhaps even COVID, whatever. And as we live through those events, we're taking information in. Remember, this information can only get in through our five senses. We see, hear, touch, smell, or taste it. Now, as we only have five input channels, it's apparent straight away that we have got a bit of a bandwidth issue there, right? Because our five senses are being bombarded by at least two million bits or more of information or data per second coming at us, we cannot possibly process that vast quantity of data. And we know there are other processing limitations, such as physiological constraints of our neurology that result in a small delay for collecting and then transmitting data so that we can process it cognitively. I do go into greater detail on this process in my NLP trainings, but for today, the main point is to understand that the current science tells us that as humans, the most we can take in is around about 130 bits per second out of the more than 2 million bits. All the rest of the information, well, we just do not process it. It's pretty much deleted from our experience of reality. And even the information we do filter in is still a vast quantity of data to sort, categorise and make use of. To process this information effectively, we delete, distort or generalise it. These strategies ensure the volume of data is manageable. We reduce our cognitive load and this enables us to function efficiently and effectively. Let's start by looking at the process of deleting information. A lot of the information we pay no attention to at all. In fact, there's so much information available that it's impossible to take note of everything. It doesn't even register. And partly why it doesn't register is because unconsciously we've decided that it's not important. It doesn't matter. You know, it really doesn't matter that there is carpet under my feet right now. What matters is that there is a solid floor, that's all. The carpet can be deleted because it's not important to me right now. And there's a whole lot of other information like the carpet that's not important to me now, although I might need to pay attention to it at different times. For example, I usually delete and have no awareness of the low humming noise from the fan in my computer. However, if I'm recording a podcast, the humming becomes important and stands out to me. I need to make sure I position the microphone in a way that it doesn't interfere with my recording. In some contexts, I'll notice the hum from the computer, but in others, it's one of the things that I just delete. There are a whole lot of examples such as that, where we just don't pay any attention, we just delete it. The next process we'll look at is distortion. In this instance, we collect information, then we alter this perceptual information so that it becomes something else. Distortion is integral to our speed of processing information. Sensory information is available to us and we turn it into what we think it is, what makes sense to us. It fulfills our expectations or confirms what we already know or have decided. Like if you barrack for a particular sporting team, whatever your code is, whether it's AFL or rugby or soccer or whatever it is, 
you'll be watching your team play and you'll be seeing umpires making particular decisions and you'll distort what you are seeing so that either it was a good decision because it favoured your team or it was an awful decision because it disadvantaged your team. We unconsciously distort the information that we're observing. When we're both observing the same external event, we have two totally different representations of that event. And that means we also have totally different experiences of it. Remember, this process of distortion is not necessarily a negative thing. For example, distortion is very important in art. Someone like Picasso was a master of distortion. And using that mastery, he was able to intrigue and confront people with his artwork. He was able to have them see things in a way that they'd never seen before. Distortion is a very important way to be creative and imaginative. The real power of distortion is that it can allow us to see the world differently. It can confront and challenge us. Sometimes this is resourceful and sometimes not. For example, we often give people labels and then we distort what we notice about that person so that they'll fit in with the label they've been given. If they act in a way that's not the same as the label, we won't notice that. Or we'll perceive that action as if it's an exception to their normal behaviour. This means we actively construct our reality to enable us to keep the label we've assigned to them. This is what we call cognitive bias. Our perception of others through these labels has the potential to really affect people's lives, positively and negatively. For example, it's common to apply labels to students in schools. The research clearly demonstrates these labels have an enormous impact on student results. In fact, research consistently highlights that the perception teachers have of their students ranks highest out of the potential variables that impact directly on school results. In their famous 1968 experiment, Robert Rosenthal and Leonor Jacobson told teachers that a number of their students were about to bloom intellectually. The students had really been selected at random. Yet, the students identified as bloomers then consistently outperformed their peers. Why? Because the teachers' expectations were based on what they had been told. The teachers' perceptions of the students were distorted in ways that meant the students' behaviour was assumed to indicate they were blooming intellectually. And importantly, the teachers' expectations were demonstrated to directly affect how the students performed and the results they achieved. Thus, our expectations of others becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is commonly referred to as the Pygmalion effect, and it's very powerful stuff. Distortion can also be a way to influence or manipulate people to change their views and perceptions. For example, if you were around in Australia back in the 1970s, both people were allies of our country who were escaping from communist Vietnam to find safety in a country that would welcome them and capitalise on their talents. But now when the label boat people is used, it has a very different derogatory meaning. These shifts demonstrate how meanings can be changed over time. 
we're constantly distorting information, evolving it, and changing the meanings. The important thing is to notice how useful distortion is and also how powerful it is. Because if we don't pay attention, we can be quite vulnerable to having our perceptions of reality changed, even without our conscious awareness. And then the final process we'll look at today is to generalise information. Generalising is how we create categories to classify information. We do this because it's a very economical way to help us make sense of the world. If we didn't generalise, then it would take forever to make sense of every bit of information, everything we experience. Let's say we see a cat, and then we had to work out, what is this animal? every time we saw a different cat. Without our generalisation surrounding all cats, not only would we need to determine if this animal we see is a cat, we also wouldn't be able to predict how the animal will most likely behave. Without the generalisations, we would constantly have to evaluate how we treat every cat. Generalisations allow us to make predictions about how the world works, and this frees up our cognitive capacity so that we can then focus on things like what is new or different in our environment. Generalisations are indeed very useful and critical to us being able to operate efficiently and effectively in our everyday lives. Now, whilst we can agree that our capacity to form generalisations is useful and necessary, it's important to acknowledge it can also cause us problems. When our drive to generalise is very strong, we distort reality in order to maintain our assumptions, predictions, and of course achieve that strong desire we all have, which is to be right. Some of the most obvious examples of overgeneralisation can be seen if we look at any of what I call the isms, I-S-M-S that is racism, sexism, colonialism, etc. Throughout history, there are very clear examples where generalisations about intelligence, capabilities, desire, acceptable and unacceptable behaviours have been generalised based on irrelevant characteristics of the people being categorised. I can still remember in Australia the legislation that prescribed wage inequality for women. It was specified in law that when doing the same job, a woman's wage would be about 75 to 80% of a man's wage. This wage inequality was built on two major and erroneous generalisations. One, women could not do the job equally with men. And two, that working women should be paid less as they were not the breadwinners in a family. It was 1972 before this inequity was abolished. There are many examples even today where our generalisations distort our perceptions and if history teaches us anything, it is that refusing to accept that our generalisations are not always right often results in perpetuating inequality with all of its pain and suffering. Being curious about the reality of others means we can consider How are these generalisations working? If upon reflection, we discover it is time to upgrade some of our taken-for-granted generalisations and categories, then we can utilise our behavioural flexibility. 
which means we can choose to eliminate or mitigate the risks that arise from the processes we use to construct our own realities. Okay, we have these pre-programmed strategies to delete, distort and generalise what we perceive in order to manage, sort and manipulate the tremendous amount of sensory information coming at us second by second. I want you to think about that now. We have more than 2 million bits of information bombarding us every second and we're deleting, distorting and generalising like crazy until we get our 130 bits or so which in turn we chunk into seven plus or minus two chunks. Now here's where it gets really fun, because I want you to imagine everyone listening to this podcast together. You're you're all hearing me talk, and yet each person has their own 130 bits per second that they're taking in. So every person's interpretation and understanding and application of what they're hearing will be different. And everyone will be distorting, deleting and generalising to get their own unique experience of this particular event. I trust that by now you realise how the NLP model of communication makes it absolutely clear that of course each of us has our own unique experience of reality. Which means it's no wonder that we are all sitting around a lot of the time saying, don't you tell me what I think, I know what really happened. And of course, I'm right about my 130 bits, because they're mine. In some cases, we get so committed to our internal representation being real, that we have even gone to war to prove that they, as in others, are wrong, and we are right. Whilst it's important to understand that these three processes, deletion, distortion, and generalization, have and continue to be really useful tools in enabling us to manage incredible amounts of information in very efficient ways, if we continue to believe our unique version of reality is the only right one, it is likely that this rigidity will have unpleasant consequences for the quality of our lives. And yet, once we do understand our active role in creating what we call reality, Hopefully we can also appreciate that it is possible that although my subjective experience or internal representation of reality and yours are totally different, perhaps we are both right. I look forward to you joining me in the next NLP Matters episode when we continue the discovery of just how subjective objective reality is as we continue to explore the fascinating subject of the human mind. In the next episode, we'll look at the impact of our internal representation on our state, our emotions, and of course, vice versa. Stay awesome, and I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. Wow, thanks for showing up and listening in. We would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts, ideas, or questions via email to joanne at destinypursuit.com.au. Now it's time to take today's recipe out into your own life. Notice the differences that show up as you apply it. We'd love to hear how you are progressing with your new approach.